0: Good evening. Welcome to Armageddon and beyond. Thank you all for being here. Welcome people who are viewing online as well. Jesus made um, a proclamation to his disciples. He warned them that a tremendous time of devastation and trial was coming upon them. He said in Matthew 24, There will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time No, not ever shall be. So think of all the trials and tribulations that this world has seen, World War I, World War II. None of these measure up to the devastation that is coming upon unbelievers in a future time called the tribulation. Well, the disciples were familiar with this prophecy time of anguish and for uh, Um, and many of the Hebrew prophets of old warned about this future period for Israel and the intense suffering that would happen. For example, the prophet Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation is referred to with many names, including the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel, a day of devastation and desolation, according to Zephaniah chapter 1, the wrath to come, And the Great Tribulation. Ed Dobson says it is referred to in more than 60 biblical passages. He adds more space is allotted to it than any other subject except for salvation and the second coming of Christ. When will the tribulation take place? We're never told. When that will take place. But we are told in Scripture it will be just before the great and glorious return of Jesus Christ. So this time of devastation is wrapped up with a time of glory when Christ returns. The coming wrath of God is revealed beforehand in Revelation chapters 6 through 19, mainly describing three judgment periods called the seals. Trumpets and bowls. Why does God pour out His wrath on people? You might ask. The Lord is not unjust. The people who suffer the judgments of God during the tribulation are not innocent. Not only do these rebels reject God and His free offer of salvation, they indulge in every vile sin known to mankind, including the massacre of those who come to faith during this time period. Even then, God appeals to these rebels to turn to him through human witnesses. The tribulation judgments serve a dual purpose, to punish hardened sinners and to move others to repentance. Well, who is worthy to judge, we might ask? Just before the Revelation in chapter 6, we have chapter 4 and chapter 5, which is a scene in heaven. That's something you see repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. You see what's happening on earth, and then you see what's happening on heaven, earth and heaven. And so here in chapter 4 of Revelation, we are guided into the very throne room of God and given a picture of God, and here is an artist's conception of what that might look like. So, As I read Revelation chapter 4, I invite you to look at this picture and reflect on the words that are spoken. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. By the way, as I've said, elder always refers to a human. And I believe that this is; these are representatives of the church, which has been raptured and is in heaven. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, or you might say the sevenfold spirit of God. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. Amen. You see a divine revelation given to us of God in his throne room. Beautiful picture. And it tells us that he is sovereign and he is worthy. And being worthy and being the creator of all creation, he has the right to judge his creation. He's not unrighteous in doing this. He is the righteous judge. Well, last week we looked at the seven seals in Revelation chapter 6. Then we began to look at the seven trumpets. We looked at the first four trumpets, and tonight we will continue with the trumpet judgments, and then the bold judgments until the conclusion. There are three woes. The last trumpets are different than the first four. The first four, you'll remember the judgment of thirds over and over again on each of the first four. It says, and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the oceans and so forth were judged. Here we come to the woes, and they are more severe in their judgment. And it's directed this time not at nature as the others were, but now at earth dwellers. God has been appealing to mankind. He has been harvesting souls for heaven, for glory. And uh, in chapter 7 of Revelation, we saw 144,000 evangelists going throughout the earth. You know, Just picture that, 144,000 evangelists like Paul, reaching out with the gospel. It's going to be a great soul harvest. So even in the tribulation, God is doing good things, and good things are happening to mankind. And yet... With all that, earth dwellers, which is the term for people who live on the earth who reject Christ, who reject God, they continue to harden their hearts and become more confirmed in their rejection of God and in their sin. And it seems like we've come to a point where, and this is always possible, the hardness of mankind can become so hard, there's no way to reach them. Now, man begins to receive the judgment of God, not just nature. The fifth and sixth trumpets are woes one and two. The third woe is the combined impact of the seven bowls. Just as you think you're reaching the end of the judgment series, when you get to the seventh trumpet, a whole new series of judgments takes place. Let's pick up these in Revelation chapter 8, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, and a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Well, friends, God is patient, not wanting any to perish. But God is also just and will If people harden their hearts, he will judge them. People can receive God's grace or God's judgment. It all comes down to the condition of the heart. Uh, Jesus told a parable recorded in multiple places in the Gospels. One is Luke 8, where it talked about the four soils. And each soil, differing hardness, represents the different hardness of people's hearts and how receptive people's hearts are to the word of God and the word of the gospel. Unfortunately, in this time, people will be hardened. So we come to the fourth trumpet. As I said, we're picking up the series. And the things that happen here include a third of the sun is struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. This is the language of appearance. The light from the sun is blocked For a third of the day. The light from the moon and stars are blocked. For a third of the night. This would certainly get people's attention. Wouldn't it? Can you imagine this happening? What impact will this have on people? It's not business as usual. The fifth angel. Sounded his trumpet. And I saw a star. That had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given The key to the shaft of the abyss. A star has fallen to the earth. Today, a star can be literal or it can be figurative. We can talk about a star athlete or a star performer on the stage. This star is also figurative, representing an angel. The figurative meaning of star here is an angel. Then he opened the abyss. Smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. Friends, these frightful locusts are demons. Their origin. Out of the shaft of the abyss, the holding place for demons, like in Luke chapter 8. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. If I had a box of scorpions up here, would anybody want to reach your hand in and grab one? Not me. No, thank you. Well, these beings torment mankind for five months. Five months of being tortured by these beings. Wow. During those days, men will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. These tortured souls would rather die than live, but death gets away from them. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold. And on their faces, their faces resembled human faces. Can we here agree we're not talking about literal locusts their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth they had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle Somehow I have managed to get out of my. Yeah. Mark, could I get your help up here? Hate to do that to him. I have touched something that I should not have touched. Think maybe I've got. I think that got it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Good. We're back, folks. All right. Can you picture this? Um, breastplates of iron and sound of wings like the thundering of many horses rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had a king over them. The angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Both of these terms have the same meaning. They mean destroyer. These strike people with terror. In the tribulation, they can't live with him, Satan and the Antichrist, for a few years. But they're choosing to spend eternity with them. Oh, these are demons. Their origin is out of the shaft of the abyss, the holding place for demons. Their leader, the angel of the abyss called Abaddon and Apollyon, and their form. These creatures are like nothing you've ever seen. I think in uh, a good comparison is in Revelation chapter 16, which we'll see in a moment, you'll see a description of demons as being like frogs. So something vile, something that's not appealing To touch or sight. And the same here. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet. And I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow sulphur, The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur, that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. Well, what are these? there are differences of opinion on this some view this description as being a description of modern warfare how Lindsay falls into this category and he will uh, show a picture up of modern attack helicopters and you know it talks about their their mouths in the description you'll see a mouth painted on a helicopter or talk about a woman's hair well maybe that would resemble the blade of the helicopter and having um, Tails that sting, you know, that might be uh, some type of weapon. That is possible. It is interesting. I uh, talked to a captain who had graduated, um, what's the military school? West Point. Point. He'd graduated from West Point. He'd served and achieved the rank of captain before getting out of the service. And I asked him to read the book of Revelation. It was very interesting. He made an observation I'd never heard before since and that is that these three colors represent the three branches of military have since the time of Napoleon, in fact, They represent even American uh, military. What are they? Well first, what is the red? Artillery, artillery, the fire. Uh, the blue is the infantry. You think of the cavalry or the, the people and the um, soldiers on westerns, you know, they wear blue, right? And then yellow. That's the cavalry. It's taken from the idea of lightning, uh, lightning fast. Others see these as strictly demonic monstrosities. And I lean this way. The colors are John's way of giving us a very vivid description. We can sum up the seal in this way. The sixth trumpet, men are killed. You see four angels... See, and think about this, a death, death to a third of mankind. 200 million troops appear coming from the east, converging on the land of Israel. Peculiar horses and riders. Now, here's where I want to go with this. What's the response with all this happening? I mean, it's not business as usual. This should grab anyone's attention. What's the response? People harden their hearts. God tries to reach out in peace. People ignore him. God sends judgment. People harden their hearts. His judgment is just. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sensual immorality, and their thefts. By the way, does that sound like a a modern description of where we are today? It it pretty much does. I turn on the TV and you see witchcraft, you see um, sorcery, you see all kinds of things designed to entertain, but also to maybe soften our conscience and keep us from really having the proper perspective that God wants us to have. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. So the seventh trumpet, and it begins with worshiping in heaven, but this is a declaration of Christ's kingdom in anticipation of the completion of the seven bowls. Well, let's see the final round. Seven last judgments are called bowls, and the content of each bowl is poured out, and judgment takes place. There are seven bowls. What are they like? I'll give you an illustration um, from my own personal experience and and my wife's. Um, When we uh, got married, we wanted to have children and we prayed about that. And one day, uh, Debbie brings in a little surprise, you know. It's pink, okay. (laughs) And we know that we're gonna have a child. And so nine months go by or almost nine months go by And uh, just as I am getting up to present uh, a presentation on a particular theological point of doctrine to my elders at another church, uh, a good friend of ours walks in the room, a woman named Marcia. and she kind of nods our way, and I'm thinking she's talking to her husband next to me, and she says no. And I go, like, me? Yeah, you. You better come. And I know it's time. You know, it's about 9 or 10 at night. And so I race home. And we're throwing the luggage in the back of the car, and we hop in the car, and it's about a 30-minute drive to the hospital, and we're both thinking, oh, I hope, I hope, I don't want to have to deliver this baby in the car. You know? And we're racing, and we're violating the speed limit, and I turn off, and I head towards the hospital in Fort Worth, and I'm driving down this main street, and I'm going fast, and I pass a police officer. I don't care, I'm going. You know, I, I, I see the hospital, I turn down the street, it's a one-way street, and I'm not going the right way. And right into the emergency room, and they wheel her up, and 13 hours later, she gives birth. (laughs) But one thing we learned about contractions, you know, they start out slow, and they can be a little deceptive. You think you're there, you're not there. And they begin to build in intensity, and they begin to happen more and more, you know, faster and faster. Well, this time period in the Old Testament is compared to a woman in labor. And that's what happens, I believe, with the bold judgments. They come faster and faster. They're all crammed in a short amount of space at the end of the tribulation. And they increase in intensity, especially when you consider that it's mounting because of the collective impact of all the previous judgments. This world is writhing as a woman in labor. These bold judgments hit hard and fast. 16 verse 1. These are found in chapter 16 of Revelation. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Greg Beale believes that the bowls are figurative. They're not to be taken literally. So the sores here are figurative and simply represent afflictions. However, think about it. The plague of boils in Exodus, were they literal? I believe they were. They're represented as literal. It seems like this plague is the same type of plague. So it makes sense that these would be literal. And they're poured out on all who have the mark of the beast. So this sounds a lot like the sores that God inflicted on the Egyptians during the ten plagues. In fact, many of these plagues remind us some of the things that happened to Egypt in the past in Moses' day. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. So you have now the whole seas turned to blood, not a third, but all of them and all sea life perishes. Perishes. Well, by the way, we don't have to worship Mother Goddess Earth to be caring for our environment. It is to that end that we've heard some zany ideas put forth, but there are some basic things like uh, that we as a nation can do. Industries have cut back on pollution poured out in our rivers and lakes, also our skies. And I'm willing to take some time to recycle if it helps. God gave us this earth, and it makes sense to take care of it, of what he gave us. These are not radical, but sensible ideas. Well, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So first you have the oceans, and now the seas. I take it that this is not literal blood, because that flows through a person's veins, but we're talking the whole of the oceans of the earth. Um, not enough blood to fill the oceans. But I think it's the language of appearance. It's red, and it causes all sea life to die. Verse 5, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One. Because you have so judged. Is our God holy? Is he patient and kind, loving? But is he also just when he judges? I believe he is. And here the explanation is given. For they, the people on earth, they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, As they deserve. So God poured out the blood on the earth dwellers. Because they poured out the blood of his saints and prophets. He makes the punishment fit the crime. Pharaoh tried to drown Jewish boys. Jewish babies. But it was his army. Who was eventually drowned in the Red Sea. Remember Haman. He tried, uh, he planned to hang Mordecai, the godly Jew. He planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows to exterminate and to exterminate the Jews. But he himself, Haman, was hanged on the gallows and his family was exterminated. The saints probably refer to all believers at this time. Holy ones can be God's holy ones in any age. And the prophets are those who deliver messages from God to humankind. The angel affirmed that those who are guilty of killing the saints and the prophets deserve what they get. They took the lives contrary to God's will, and now God is taking their lives in exchange. And verse 7, I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God, Almighty, true and just, are your judgments. Do you see the irony that God intends in this? These people have shed the blood of God's prophets. So he says, Here, here is blood to drink. Again, I believe this is the language of appearance. Just as the red tide killed ocean life, so now the waters and streams become red. They have the appearance of blood. Can you imagine having a deep thirst? and not being able to find water to drink. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and to glorify him. This is a time... When sunblock 2,000 will not be enough. Talk about global warming. This is more. In Revelation, we're not seeing an increase of, say, a couple degrees over centuries. Perhaps many, many degrees in a matter of days. God will crank up the thermostat. In a nova, a sun expands and it creates explosive heat, intense heat. And here's the effect of something like that. The heat becomes intense. You know, one summer I remember we were facing pretty hot days. There were 70 days with temperatures between 100 and 110. If you've been here long in Texas, you've seen summers like that. But this day in Revelation will break our records for sure. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But what? But they refused to repent of what they had done. So, you have the fifth bowl, it's darkness. Upon the beast's kingdom, which is plunged into darkness. The Antichrist thought he was on top of the heap. He thought he was invincible. He thought he could kill without being brought to account for his actions. But God is still in control. God plunges this pitiful human dictatorship into darkness, perhaps hampering his attempts to. Execute anyone who did not worship him. Along with the darkness comes pain. People will curse God and refuse to repent. God's judgment is on unbelievers. The church is gone. There's no mention of the church here. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare a way for the kings from the east. So here we have the great river Euphrates. You know, we talk about biblical times. This is found in the Bible. We we talk about Mesopotamia, which is the area between the two great rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris. Uh, This is the longest river, I believe, in Asia. It's uh, over 1,700 miles long. And when it's at its peak, it's 30 feet deep and between 12, I'm sorry, between 3 and 12 miles wide. Drying this thing up is no small feat, but perhaps we know how this might be accomplished. In recent years, the Ataturk Dam has been constructed in Turkey, where it begins. And once the river dries up, the armies of the east are on the march headed towards Israel. I found this interesting. The front page of the New York Times, July 2009, had a stunning headline, Iraq Suffers as the Euphrates River dwindles. The drying up of this historic river in the land of ancient Babylon is so stunning that even the times had to note the biblical prophecy says this will happen in the last days of history in the lead-up to the apocalyptic battle of Armageddon described in the book of Revelations. So, skeptics, stay tuned. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Sometimes people think that this was just limited to the land of Israel sometime in the past. But what do you see here? This is for all the kings of the earth. This is not limited to one particular small area in the Middle East. This is for the whole earth. That's never happened. And so we believe that this is yet future. So you have three unclean spirits... And the kings are led by them to Armageddon. Well, Previously, we showed that Satan wants to be God. He tries to copy God. And he has a fake trinity. Satan is the counterfeit father. The Antichrist is the counterfeit son. And the false prophet is a counterfeit compared to the Holy Spirit. Because just like the Holy Spirit draws attention and gives glory to Christ, so the false prophet will do to the Antichrist. Three demonic spirits go from them throughout the world, luring kings to the location of Armageddon. What is this and where is this? Armageddon is a real place. It exists in northern Israel. It is the Hebrew term for hill, har, means hill, and Megiddo, a place that is... um, from an ancient town located in this area in northern Israel. The hill overlooks the spacious valley of Jezreel, and it will be the staging ground for an all-out attack on Israel. Verse 15, "...behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed." What is this? Is is this talking about streaking? (laughs) No. During the lead up to the war, Jesus injects a personal warning to those people who have come to faith during this time. And he's warning his own massive people, remember, because there's been a great soul harvest in Revelation 7 and beyond. And he's warning his people that return will be sudden and unexpected. The only way to avoid shame on that day is to be spiritually alert and clothed with righteousness. So it's kind of a word picture here. You know, it's like we put on righteousness like we might choose a garment. I want this one. I put it on. Well, we need to put on good works. We need to do works of righteousness. And if we do that, we will not be embarrassed when Christ comes. And if this, of course, is speaking to the saints in the future during this tribulation period, and the same is true for them. If they live a righteous life, they will receive honor when Christ comes. Then they gathered, these spirits, gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew phrase Har Megiddo, meaning Mount of Megiddo. It is the name of the ancient hilltop settlement in northern Israel near Haifa. Tom Constable says, probably Armageddon refers to the hill country surrounding Megiddo, which includes all the mountains that border the approximately 14 by 20 mile valley of Jezreel. So, um, there are a number of mountains, uh, Mount Tabor, um, Mount Carmel. Uh, there are a number of mountains here. Uh, this is where uh, Elijah had his famous battle with the false prophets of Baal. And I've been up on this mountain, and I've been able to look out over this vast valley. It's a huge ground, but if you had all the armies of the earth, they wouldn't be able to be contained in this approximately 14 by 20 um, mile valley. What I believe it is, is this is the staging ground. This is where the armies come to. They will land an amphibious assault and and they'll come up into this valley and get prepared to march down the valley of Jezreel and then finally down the Jordan Rift Valley all the way towards Jerusalem. So that's almost a 200 mile stretch. So that's how you manage to get all these different armies in, in this space. As I said, nearby is a huge plain that has been the site of many historic battles. For example, uh, earlier Deborah and Barak had defeated the Canaanites in this valley, Judges 4 and 5. Gideon had routed the Midianites. King Josiah also died there when he opposed Pharaoh Necho. Well, the greatest battle on this site has yet to occur. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. So picture this severe earthquake, bigger than any earthquake that has ever happened. Great city split, probably a reference to uh, Jerusalem. (laughs) Cities of the world collapse. Not a local phenomenon. This is shaking the whole earth. (laughs) Babylon is punished. This greatest of earthquake of all time will destroy virtually all the cities of the world. It says the cities of the nations fell Babylon on the Euphrates is the most significant of these cities. Chapters 17 and 18 describe the fall of Babylon in more detail. I believe it's a city because it says over and over the city Babylon, this great city, this city, this city. It's a city. It's a city in Iraq, an ancient city. But I think it's also something more. I think it's a religious system. Babylon is the fountainhead of all false religion. And in the days ahead, it again will be that. And God will destroy it because of the false religion that it propagates. In the 1990s and early 2000s, the government of Iraq under Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild the city of Babylon. Literal interpreters have differed on the question of whether the city will be completely rebuilt or not. Some believe that Iraq will, in fact, rebuild Babylon, mainly in view of what the prophets predicted that would happen to Babylon. And and this is important. Isaiah 13 and 14, and in Jeremiah 50 and 51. Both of these great prophets of God, because of the evil of the city, predict some future judgment that will be poured out on this city. And it's described as being sudden and cataclysmic. But in history, that never happened. Babylon faded over centuries. And its buildings still exist. And there's interest in rebuilding it still today. They're also talking about building a uh, navigation port up the Euphrates. I think that it is possible that this city may literally be rebuilt. And it would be a fitting description for the things that happen in the end times. As I've said before, I think, you could describe the Bible as a tale of two cities, one the great city Jerusalem, the city with God's name on it, and the other Babylon, the source of all idolatry. If you go back and you read Isaiah 13 and 14, Isaiah's prophecy of the fall of Babylon, and you read Jeremiah 50 and 51, I think you may come to the same conclusion I have, and I. I discussed it with uh, prophecy scholar Tommy Ice, and he agrees. This is something that has never happened. These things have never been fulfilled. And I believe God is true. And if he makes a promise of judgment on a city, even if it hasn't happened yet, I believe it will happen in the future. God is true. So, final question. God, why don't you do something about evil? Have we ever asked that? Do you think the recipients of the letter, which I take in the 90s, um, perhaps 95 AD, those recipients were under the tyranny of Domitian, the evil um, emperor of the Roman Empire who had revived idolatry, commanded people to offer incense, a pitch of incense to idols or else be killed. So people are wondering, God, why don't you do something? And here's his answer. I will. We as saints are commanded to wait. We're commanded to be patient, to wait on God, to trust him through all circumstances. Whatever happens in our life, whatever happens in this world, let's hang on to God. Let's trust him. And here's the application. God is a just judge. Now, we cringe at the horrible judgments poured out on rebellion, but it is just. The thing to remember is that anytime someone genuinely turns to God, there is mercy and grace. On the cross, Christ promised to the thief who repented that he would be with him that day. Where? In paradise, heaven. Wow. That's grace. And take the prodigal son, for example, who was both immoral and wasteful with his father's money. In fact, he uh, he asked his father for the inheritance, which should only happen when the father died. Somebody living in the Middle East was asked about that, and they said, well, that's like wishing your father was dead. The prodigal son took his money, which his father graciously gave to him, and left and squandered it on what the Bible says, riotous living. And when he had nothing, you remember he was reduced to poverty. And he was forced to work a little Jewish boy, Jewish young man, feeding pigs, which I'm sure grated on him. So he gets the revelation. Sometimes we have to hit bottom before we look up, don't we? He hit bottom. And he looked up to God, or looked up to thinking about his father, and he said, you know, the servants, the slaves in my father's household, they're proud off than this. I should go to my father. And he rehearses this, this contrite expression asking for forgiveness. You now, my father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth, and I'm not worthy in your sight, and please forgive me and receive me. Make me one of your slaves. So he gets home, and the father, who cares about his son, is longingly looking for his son, I think he's going out every day and looking over the hill, hoping his son will come back. And when he sees his son, he doesn't wait. He commands his servants, hey, get the fatted calf, slay it. His son arrives. He puts the robe back on him. The son tries to confess his sin and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. Son, I love you. Don't worry about it. Put this robe on you. And here's the ring. What did the ring symbolize? the ability to do business. He's restoring the trust that he had before he left to his son. His son that has done nothing to earn it. That's a loving father. Who does that father represent? Our father in heaven. That's what he's like. If any person repents, if any person recognizes they have done wrong, and trusts Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. They receive God's forgiveness. It's automatic. He doesn't wait for 30 days to see if you get your life right. We have it right then. That's the kind of God we serve. Yes, he's a just judge, but more than that, he's a loving father. Father God, I thank you for the love that you have for us. I thank you for the kindness. And even as we read in these chapters about the harsh judgment, Father, we know it is right, it is just. But, Father, more than that, there's an ending to the story which is good, and that's that Christ comes back. And he sets up a kingdom on this earth that we can trust and look to him for righteous leadership. And, Father, all this past will be forgotten because it will pale in comparison to the righteousness and the goodness that Christ will bring. So, Father, we long for his return, and we pray, Father, may it be soon. Meredith. Amen.